Good morning, Hayden Bible Church. His name is wonderful. Isn't it wonderful, too, that he's given us hearts that want to praise that name? Uh, and, and isn't it wonderful that uh, he's blessed us with a church that sings his word back to him? And uh, we better pray before we get started. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for Jesus Christ, the wonderful one, the holy one. Lord, we gladly come here worshiping in spirit and truth based on the true knowledge of who Jesus Christ, our King, is. We thank you that he's our victorious Savior. We thank you that he redeemed us. Thank you that he washed us and made us clean and clothed us with a new righteousness, not of our own, Lord, but of him. And we thank you, Lord, that we've been made accepted in him. And now we have access by grace to the throne of God. We bring praises to you this morning. And we ask that you would be blessed and pleased. And, and, we, put, and we pray, that Lord, that even our time together, our songs uh, exalting the name of Jesus Christ, would put a smile on your face, Lord, and bless your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the last nine weeks, we've been focusing on the doctrines of God's church. And we've covered topics ranging from the nature of the church to the membership of the church, the duties of church members to leadership to mission. We focused on teaching and church discipline. And these final two messages this weekend and next weekend are going to be focused on worship, namely the theology and the elements and the principles of true biblical worship. And we all have an idea in our minds of what worship is because at some level each of us participates in worship uh, every day. Um, we participate in worship just in the way that we respond to life. We participate in worship as we sing songs and we, certainly we participate in worship as we open the word and we come to church and sing the word. We're worshipers at heart. The worship, uh, the word worship is all over your Bibles, and both in the Hebrew and the Greek languages. The English word that translators use so that we can understand the word worship in, from our Bibles is based on an old English word, the word worthskype. Kind of an interesting word. The word uh, worthskype is a word that you might be able to hear worthship in, or worthiness. You can hear that word in there, value. I want to borrow a definition from Sinclair Ferguson. He says that worship is the appropriate inner dispositions and the proper outer expressions involved in the recognition of and response to the God who reveals himself in creation, in providence, in Redemption as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These underlying concepts include bowing down before, kissing toward, expressing reverence and awe for, honoring the glory of, and serving. The city of God, the, the, that heavenly city that we've been learning about, where all born-again believers reside in Christ, this beautiful city adorned in the righteousness of Christ is a bowed down city. 
The city of God is a bowed down city. We're a city whose express purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and he called us into his marvelous light. And, we, and as we start this morning, I want to take you clear back to the Garden of Eden. Back to original creation where God had made everything and, and he declared it good in the truest sense of that word. And the first Adam was assigned the task of spreading the glory of God across the planet as the image of God and created humans spread to the four corners of the earth. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And as his image spread, so would the praise of his great and awesome name. In fact, God created the heavens and the earth to be an expanded sanctuary of the praise of the glory of the great God. So that everything that has breath praises the Lord. In Psalm 19, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The majesty of God's creation sings its own praise to the Lord with words that we can see through what's been made. There's no place on the planet that can't see the declared glory of God through what he's, been, what he's created. Psalm 148 sings these praises. The psalmist says, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, and all deeps, fire and hail and snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and hills, fruit trees, and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. All of creation fulfills the word of the Lord in proclaiming his praises by displaying his glory in their created purpose, the very purpose that he assigns them. Adam's purpose was to make the entire earth a tabernacle of praise to the Lord. Worship is the primary human responsibility. As we know, in Adam's rebellion, all of humanity inherited a worship disorder. That worship disorder is exemplified in Romans 1.25. Paul writes and says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. In Adam, each of us is born with a worship disorder, an intrinsic rebellion against our holy God by our very nature. Adam's race became a fogged mirror, not only unwilling, but unable to reflect right praise back to our great God. But today, 
in the city of the living God, the, the free Jerusalem from above, the city that's come down out of heaven from God, please see today that in Christ, Jesus heals my worship disorder. Jesus heals my worship disorder. That, that worship disorder is exemplified all through Scripture. For example, in Acts 17, you'll remember the Apostle Paul is in the earthly city of Athens, Greece. And while he was staying there, the word says that his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. This earthly city had a worship disorder. In verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people, life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations so that they would seek God, if perhaps that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. People of this world are born in a dark fog of lostness, We were created with hearts designed to worship the living God. But like with the Athenians, our sin has corrupted that God-given desire and turned us into idolaters. Again, from Romans 1, the same Apostle Paul who had visited Greece wrote to the Roman Christians. And something that each of us born with worship disorders desperately needs to hear. In verse 18, he said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Man's rebellious worship disorder has brought the wrath of God upon us. All of creation declares his glory, yet by our ungodliness and our unrighteousness, and and we by our nature suppress that truth and exchange it for a lie. And like the Athenians, we do worship, but we end up worshiping what's created instead of the one true creator, God. We need a helper. We need someone to redeem us from his wrath and and at the same time change our hearts so profoundly that we become right worshipers, giving proper glory to the one who created us. And we're very fortunate today because in Christ Jesus heals that worship disorder. Let's turn to John chapter 4. In John 4, Jesus, the son of the living God, is crossing paths with a woman with a worship disorder like ours, like everyone's. She was a Samaritan woman, and her culture's 
worship disorder had convoluted the worship of the one true God into a mixed up mess. Like we see all over in our culture today, even in places called churches. In her day, they had a measure of biblical ideas that were mixed up in the same bowl of worldly idolatrous ideas. And what came out was a God in a worship system invented from their own imagination. Like a golden calf, but way less obvious. Jesus is sitting by a well in Samaria telling her about his his life-giving water, and she's intrigued, and she exposes her, actually, excuse me, he exposes her sinful need of redemption, and when he exposes her, she sees that he knows things. We've seen in other texts in our series that his eyes are like a flame of fire, and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. His gaze pierces deep, into his, her heart, and his word ex, exposes her deepest need. For his healing to begin, we must be laid bare before him, so he, he's, and he's so kind to show us our need. And he's so faithful to help us as we repent and turn to him. In verse 20, the woman says to him, Our fathers... Worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I wonder this morning, can you see, as we're looking at this text, that you were born with a worship disorder? A worship disorder that was manifested in rebellion against worshiping the one true God. What, what are some signs of your, dis, your sinful dysfunction? Where's the zeal of your heart focused this morning? Are you worshiping? How do you know you're worshiping the right God? How do you know you're, you haven't made up a God to worship in your own mind? How do you know you're even worshiping in the right way? How do you know the church you're attending is pointing you toward the creator God of the Bible and not to some false God that they concocted in their own minds? Like the Samaritan woman, each of us has been born into a culture that sinfully turns a blind eye to the one who's created us. Like throughout all of history, from the fall of man till now, we live today in a you-do-you culture. Each generation of Adam's race has demonstrated you do you, that nature, by doing what's right in our own eyes, even if it's not based on reality and it's not based on truth. The only difference today is that we have more effective modes of communicating that. And so we embolden ourselves and and, in our independence from God as we allow our hearts to lust after those things that aren't the one true God. But today we can see here in our passage that in Christ... Jesus is the healer 
of my worship disorder. Our woman at the well is intrigued by him, and, and, he, he thinks she th- and she thinks that he's some sort of a prophet with intriguing spiritual abilities, and so she's willing to engage with him on that level. Again, from verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Like all of us born with our worship disorder, the people of Samaria had, had mixed up their religious practices with all the enchantments of those who surrounded them. Our, our hearts become enamored with the ideas and we, and we become enamored with the thinking processes of lost men. And we, we start to esteem that purpose so highly that it eventually becomes our purpose. Jesus came to heal that problem. The Samaritans even build themselves up a temple at one point on on Mount Gerizim, I understand, from Jewish antiquity, and set up a religious system of worship that they designed. And I understand that they still esteem that location of worship highly even today. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God's going to change something drastically, Jesus tells her, because right worship is established by God. In Christ, Jesus heals my worship disorder, and that worship correction is what's established by God. As we know, Jerusalem had had been demonstrating Israel's worship disorder for thousands of years. In fact, the temple of Jesus' day had become a symbol of disordered worship. And you might remember from two chapters back, Jesus had to cleanse the place of of worship from its disordered worship practices. In John 2.14, he says that, uh, John, the, the writer, says, He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out all the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. The the wrong worship of Jesus' day was exemplified by the spirit of the world. Jews had allowed the worship of the one true God to become a business, a money-making scheme. Even if people came to the temple with sincere hearts, they were forced to conform to the business model of that day and participate in a corrupt money-making system that still didn't give them lasting access to the throne room of God's glory. Right worship is established by God. And yet like the Samaritans of the, uh, and the Jews of Jesus' day, many of us live with the delusion that right worship is based on my preferences and my systems. And I search from church to church to find that right special place that makes me feel right, that'll help manipulate my emotions so I feel good. Missing the fact that true, joyful emotion is when we turn our praise to the one true God. We look for churches that have my kind of music. And it has the right mood. And and of course, the worship leader has the right kind of personality based on how I define worship leaders to be. 
Yet I never think to ask, how does God want me to worship? How does God want me to worship? Why don't we ask that? Most of our, the people that I've talked to, and certainly including myself, never think to ask a question like that. What we, we just do what seems to make sense. I remember several years before I came to Christ, I remember our lives were changing and it seemed like the right time to think about spiritual things. I was a science guy. I was intrigued by a religion, nevertheless, and also UFOs, by the way, so my worship disorder was still running rampant. And I also uh, wanted to find some sort of anonymous outlet for my interest in religion. And Carlina had been involved with the Catholic Church at some level throughout her life. And, and, for, and by the way, whenever I saw religion on TV, it always looked like this, very gothic, seemingly spiritual. The priests dressed cool. There were statues, and excuse me, statues. There, so, so we ended up heading in that direction, and, and purely based on my thinking about what made sense, because it looked right. It felt right. There were so many rituals. There were so many traditional practices to be involved with that you could be busy with religion every single day in some fashion. But there came a day away from that building which seemed so spiritual based on my reasoning. There came a day when I actually met the real Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And everything changed in just a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, so to speak. It's like I had eye surgery and I could see color for the first time. It was like I was Lucy who just stepped through that wardrobe into Narnia and there were fawns and talking beavers running around everywhere. And I saw the great lion and he redeemed my soul and I worshipped him for the first time from my heart. I wanted him. In verse 22, Jesus tells the woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. See here this morning as well that right worship is directed by God. From a heart that has come to know the real living God. The very God who meets us where we are and redeems our life from the pit. And he gives us a heart that loves him and heals our worship disorder so that we can sing and preach his praises to the ends of the earth. Right worship is established by God and right worship is directed by God because Jesus Christ is the healer of my worship disorder. Jesus continues in verse 22 and tells the non-Jewish Samaritan woman, a key truth that you and I as Gentiles might forget about without this reminder. Again, he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. We worship what we know, Jesus says. Salvation is from the Jews, he tells her. You, you and I as Gentiles who have trusted in the cleansing blood of the Jewish Messiah along with this woman of Samaria, have been brought into something that has been the plan of God from ages past. All through history, God had purposed for the redemption of Adam's worship-disordered, sinful race through a Messiah, a Christ. 
the Son of God, the Son of Man, a victor over sin and death, and he would, who would come through the line of the throne of King David himself. Yet he was a greater David and achieved a greater victory than any of David's victories. Jesus was the final culmination, the sum of history leading to promised redemption and the overwhelming destruction of our last enemy. David and Goliath served as a foreshadow of the true David who overwhelmed and destroyed death itself. Jesus told the woman, your worship is pointless and misdirected. You have a worship disorder. You worship what you do not know. Salvation is from the Jews. And so we see through the true David this morning that right worship is through Christ, the Messiah. It's only through him. And the Lord is so kind and at the same time so purposeful in redeeming his assignment to Adam, the assignment to make the whole earth a temple of praise to the Lord so that right worship comes from every nation and is sent to the one true God. That's this ministry, by the way, to make every nation a worshiper of Jesus Christ. And it will happen. Romans 9 says that he also called us you and me from Idaho, even us, Romans 9 verse 24 says, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as, as he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it is said of them, you were not my people, there, even in Hayden, Idaho, they shall be called the sons of the living God. He calls us through faith in Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. Salvation is from the Jews. In Luke 1, Zacharias said that God raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, the line of the Messiah, the king. And he calls us, even in Hayden, or in Mexico, or in Nepal, or China, every place on the planet, each of us in Christ are healed of our worship disorder through repentance and faith. He makes us born again and replaces our stony and stubborn heart with a broken heart for Christ. He makes us a people sons and daughters of the family of God, right along with the believing remnant of Jewish people. And he gives us a future and an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and not, it will never fade away, reserved in heaven. Salvation is of the Jews, and we've been brought near to, the, to God by the blood of their promised Messiah. We're beneficiaries of a promise. Look back at verse 23. Jesus says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Notice here that right worship is from the right temple. Instead of the temple on Mount Gerizim or even the temple in Jerusalem with its ministry passing away because its covenant was passing away, 
Because the actual once for all sacrifice that all those other Levitical sacrifices for thousands of years pointed to, the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that very sacrifice for sin that this precious woman so desperately needed was standing right in front of her. God has ordained a true worship. And he is developing true worshipers. And and in a sense, Christ himself is our temple Even though the Jewish temple soon wouldn't have one single stone standing upon another, the true temple in Christ that God was raising, the temple of the new covenant, would be raised up in three days. And this temple would spread throughout the earth into a holy temple in the Lord as true worshipers are brought to life as living stones, one redeemed heart at a time, all aligned to Christ our cornerstone. Back to verse 23, Jesus says to this precious lady, true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. True worshipers, genuine worshipers, worshipers with a knowledge of who they're worshiping will worship in spirit and truth. True worshipers born of the Holy Spirit of God, born from above, worship now in spirit. See here as well that right worship is from a right heart. Right worship is from the right heart. I know you remember the Apostle Paul saying to the Corinthians that a natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. The natural man has a profound worship disorder and it's only in Christ, the right temple, that right worship is restored. At Pentecost, the glory of the Lord filled this new end-time temple, the church. And from then on, each time a new disordered worshiper is redeemed to the glory of God, another heart is freed to worship in spirit from their heart, as opposed to conformity to some sort of religious regulation. How many of us have been in a church tradition where there was a direction manual? Like instructions. Where they help you know what thing to say next or, or when to sit or when to stand or how to respond. How many of you have had instruction manuals for worship? A recipe manual for external worship that isn't from your heart but instead from the black and white letters on pages sent in a book from headquarters. Directions. That's not true worship. That's worship according to the letter. True worship is according to the spirit, from a heart with newborn passion for the one true and living God. I wonder how many of us stand here every week wondering what all these people are so joyful about. What are they singing about? Thinking to yourself, I'm sick of these songs. Paul says to the Philippians, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ and Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You know what? Throw out your direction manual. Repent and come to Christ because God wants your worship in spirit and truth. He's had thousands of years of people whose hearts are far from him. People sick of the songs. He hates that. He spits that out of his mouth. He's seeking worshipers who will worship from their hearts. 
based on true love for him, based on a true knowledge of him that can only be found in his word. To him, based on the truth that he's revealed to us, belongs all honor and glory and praise. Look back at verse 24. Jesus says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You can't see him. You can't touch him. He's not of our human senses. He's spirit. He's not confined to one region or one building or one special holy place. And because he's spirit, he must be worshipped that way. We can try as we, hard as we want to feel him. To create a space that we can sense him. Or, or set a mood in a room that might help us touch him. In fact, we can focus on worship and the sensations and the feelings of worship so diligently that we lose sight of the God that we're worshiping. Again, Sinclair Ferguson wrote that true worship, therefore, has its focus not on worship as such, but on the triune Lord himself. In Christ, Jesus heals my worship disorder. Please see here today as well that right worship grows from a right understanding of God. And I worship him in spirit and truth. Right worship is established by God. It's directed by God. It's through Christ the Messiah. It's from the right temple. It's from the right heart. And it grows out of a right understanding of God. And it's all directed to the one true God. Here at Hayden Bible Church, we see worship as a way of living. When we come together, we see worship as multifaceted, and we look to facilitate each of us worshiping from our hearts based on truth. And you know, for that to happen, we have to teach the truth of the Word. So we can actually worship what we know. Elements of right worship are always grounded in the Word of God. Always. So each of us together is a worker of each other's rejoicing in the Lord. We worship our great God through preaching the word. We, we worship him through singing his word. We worship him in the ordinance of communion and baptism. On a side note, by the way, that's what we're going to be doing next week. And there's still time, by the way, if you would like to be part of the obedience of baptism, uh, you can still do that. We worship God as we fellowship in our small groups. We, we worship as we serve one another. We, we worship when we preach the gospel, when we shine the light of his righteousness and goodness and bring the truth of his word to our community, even in political settings. We can all see here this morning that for us to worship in spirit and truth, our ministries must remain God-centered. All of us are involved with that purpose. Each of us is a steward of that purpose. We have to endeavor in that holiness so that we don't wake up in the ditch somewhere having veered off the road without ever knowing that we'd fallen asleep. We have to be diligent and to be careful not to become owner's manual worshipers according to the letter. We need to maintain but yet we need to maintain order in our worship yet at the same time engage all of us in worship. I think it was last year, Pastor Darrell shared a 
great acrostic that I think that we need to repeat today from, I think it was from his dad. It was yours? You wrote this? Okay, he does the acrostics. Worship is a whole heart surrendered to the living God. Obedience to the Lord's commands. Reverence given to God and God alone. Serving God with gladness. Hope in his return. The immeasurable love of God. Praise to God from whom all blessings flow. Worship penetrates every aspect of our lives. There are some of you in here this morning who have never known the object of our worship. Week after week you come with your loved ones. You hear the songs. You grit it through the preaching. You look at your watch wondering when this will end. Even today. As soon as the service ends, you head straight for your car. You always invent convenient excuses to allow for your escape from the presence of Christians. In fact, the last thing you want to do is get trapped into some weird conversation with some weirdo who's glowing in the praise of his great God from his heart. But you don't see it. I'm going to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ can even heal your worship disorder. He can redeem your soul. By faith right now, cry out for him for salvation just in the privacy of your own spirit. Repent of your sin. Turn from your aimless way and find joy for the first time in worshiping Christ. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In Christ, Jesus heals my worship disorder. Come, let us worship and bow down. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus Christ, our healer. Lord, we confess, born as lost in the fog, sons of Adam, we confess that we had that worship disorder, but praise be to God, through Jesus Christ, you've brought us to life. You've replaced our hearts. You've given us a, a spirit of love for the one that, who redeemed us. Lord, we regret our rebellion, but we look forward to growth in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and growth in praising his wonderful name. In his name we pray. Amen.